This episode of New Politics was recorded on December 11, 2020, and recorded on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the hard right-wing agenda pushed yet again by the federal government, we look at one of the most dramatic years ever in world politics, and we bring out the crystal ball and look at what might be happening in 2021. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, ethics advisor to Gladys Berejiklian. There are more Nazis being revealed by this federal government. Christian Porter wants to introduce severe industrial relations reforms. The cashless debit card is one step closer to being a permanent program, although it has been blocked in the Senate for the time being. And an aggressive debt recovery program has been introduced to claw back money from welfare recipients. And there's no secret about their agenda. A few months ago, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, he did say that his agenda would be guided by the ideals of former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. She left office 30 years ago, but it seems like the Liberal Party of today wants to continue with Thatcher's nastiness, her spiteful, hateful and humiliating policies that attack working people, pensioners and social security recipients. Now, in my opinion, there should never be a right time for these ideas, but these are the wrong policies at the wrong time. We keep saying this on this podcast, but this government just keeps wanting to introduce policies that should never even be reaching the discussion table. It's a government which says it's for smaller government, less red tape, making things easier till it comes to looking after the poor. They don't want to look after the poor. That's very clear. They want to kick into the poor and they want anyone under a certain income level to be totally under their yoke, under the thumb. As you said earlier, humiliated, oppressed. And I really don't like saying this. I wish it wasn't true. I wish I could see evidence that shows that it's not true, but it is. I can't think of any other reason why you'd bring in these policies except to deliberately hurt people while you're enriching yourself. I think we're going to be really fair. I don't know that they've set out to hurt people per se. If a result of enriching themselves is hurting people, then, you know, that doesn't seem to bother them. Well, many of these policies sound exactly the same as the policies that were introduced by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. And there have been a wide range of changes proposed by Christian Porter. He's the Attorney General that's responsible for the carriage of this legislation. And they're being introduced under the guise of COVID-19. There have been suggestions that the business sector has been doing it tough, and generally that has been the case. But they're also pushing this idea that it's better for workers to have a job than no job at all. That's that's certainly the case. There's no question about that. But the changes that are being proposed here include a business being able to change the duties of a worker, being able to force them to work extra hours without overtime, more casualisation, reduced pay levels for at least the next two years, and no back pay in those circumstances where workers have been underpaid. So for sure, people might prefer to have a job, but they want job security. But it seems that the main feature Christian Porter wants to make permanent in this case is insecure work. I did check the original work choices package that John Howard wanted to introduce back in 2005. That was quite draconian and quite severe. And what is currently being proposed by this government is exactly the same. It's one of the things that they won't let go of. You can trace it back to conservative legislation of the the 50s, conservative legislation of the 20s, conservative legislation of the 1890s. This notion of wages are too high. People shouldn't need a living wage. Only the worthy should be rich. There's a branch of Christianity, and it manifests itself in several ways. You have prosperity theology, but you also have the Protestant work ethic with the idea that if you live properly, work hard, you will be rewarded. Now, what happens there is that those who get money, and this is not everybody with money, by the way. I don't want to tar everybody with the same brush. Once certain people start to get money, they forget that there's a a social bill that comes with that 
And that doesn't mean, you know, giving some of your money away. It is being socially responsible, paying fair prices, making sure that the people who work for you are working safely and making enough. And Australia was a model in this. The harvester decision with uh, Justice Bourne's Higgins. Now, I know it's highly problematic in modern years, but the idea that a man could have a, a wife and two children and live in frugal comfort, and that's how you set the award. So you have so much sick leave, you have so much holiday pay, you have uh, a livable wage. As I said, we could argue where Higgins was wrong, but he acknowledged that people deserved a level of comfort. You know, he didn't think everybody should live on the mansion on the hill and drive big cars and have 55 servants or anything like that, which is what I think he meant by frugal. But he did think that you should be able to own a house. You should be able to afford rent. You should be able to afford food and your utility bills without having to worry about it if you're working full time. And that one person in the family could bring in the income and the other person didn't have to worry about that. There's also that issue of the social contract that was developed by mm. French philosophers in the 1700s, such as Rousseau and Proudhon, and that the idea that there's a contract that exists between the rulers and people within the realm, but people have inherent rights that can be exercised and that these rights are collectively more powerful than those in government. But policies such as these that are being prepared or provided and promoted by the current government they want to rip up that social contract and remove powers and rights that belong to the general population and give it to the business class. And we've seen more evidence of this sort of behaviour of the government wanting to rip up this social contract through the actions of Senator Jane Hume. And she's yeah. been leading the campaign against industry superannuation funds. And this has got to be one of the more bizarre campaigns that I've ever come across. Industry super funds, they're mainly controlled by unions and not-for-profit groups. They generally have a return of around 8%, whereas retail funds, mainly managed by the banks and for-profit providers, have a, a, an average return of around 1% or 2% less than that. And over a working career, that can make a massive difference. So why is the government attacking industry super funds on such a level? I don't know who owns the private super. But I imagine a list of that might be very informative and revealing. I also think a lot of industry supers have stopped investing in fossil fuels and the usual suspects of the current Liberal Party who are there really to protect those vested interests. A lot of the industry supers have, have got out of this stuff, not just for ideological reasons, but that it's now bad business. Fossil fuels are dying. Coal mines are shutting everywhere. Europe is banning petrol cars by 2050 or 2040 or something like that. I think Asia is heading that way. Really only North America and really only the United States is going to hold on. But even still, I think that the march to a new form of power is inevitable. I was going to say that the Indu card is back on the agenda, but it's never really gone away. It's the cashless debit card scheme the government has been trialling for the past five years. It has mainly been targeting Indigenous people in remote communities, and it severely restricts what the recipients can spend their money on. It's a racist scheme, it's discriminatory, it's paternalistic, and ultimately it doesn't work. It's been on trial, but the government wants to make it a permanent program, and Legislation to make it permanent was passed in the lower house this week, but it was blocked in the Senate by Rex Patrick from the Centre Alliance. Now, he did make a fact-finding trip to Sejuna to see it for himself, but he didn't need to worry about that. There have already been three Senate inquiries in 2015, 2017 and 2018, and they've all shown that the Inju card is actually ineffective. It, its stated benefits were far from being realised within those trials. Patrick did vote against the program becoming permanent, but the trials have been extended for another two years, and the government has reintroduced the bill in the lower house. Now, they may be looking for a legislative trigger so they can call a double dissolution election at some point in the future, but it seems that the intention of this government is to introduce the Indu card and the cashless debit card on a permanent basis, not just for welfare recipients in difficult communities, but for 
all recipients, including the unemployed and aged care pension. The first thing I noticed is that people were getting angry about uh, Zali Stegel voting in favour of it. She did not. I think it's fair to point out, you know, when these mistakes happen, I think it's fair to say, look, no, Zali Stegel and um, Rebecca Sharkey. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that if I was to sit down and talk with either of the, those two that I would agree very much with them. But fair is fair. Neither of them voted for it, and both of them were quite vociferous in their opposition to it. It seems to me that the government doesn't want to take the blame because they know that it's going to be a disaster. I think having a voluntary card to help with spending if you're in really dire financial straits for example, or if you have some kind of drug or alcohol or gambling addiction and so your money should be sequestered away that so you can buy necessities. The fact that a company gets $10,000 per year per card and if it costs the banks $10,000 per debit card, they'd never do it. You know, a debit card probably costs 10 or $12 to set up which they get back from you in fees and low interest and, and the interest on the money you've put on there and the transaction fees and what have you. If it costs $10,000, they'd never make that money back in any way that would maintain their customer base. You know, We need to look at all of that at heart. It's wrong. The cashless debit card, it was the brainchild of Andrew Forrest. He's been talking about it for a long, long time, perhaps around... 10 or 11 years. Now, you'd think that all of these captains of industry would be too busy counting their money or investing in new projects to to generate even more income for themselves, but they shouldn't be anywhere near the development of social policy. Indu is a company with strong Liberal National Party links. Larry Anthony, a former Liberal Party MP, has shares in this company, as do a number of other Liberal and National Party operatives. These are very onerous and punitive programs. Fair enough that people choose to be on these programs if they if they wish to, but it shouldn't be enforced upon anyone. Labor did equivocate on the program when it was first introduced, or the trials were first introduced five years ago, deciding that they wanted to see the results of the trials before deciding, but they've now fully ruled it out, although they haven't stated what they will do with the program mm. when they return to government. Private industry doesn't work for some things. It doesn't work for infrastructure. We've seen that in New South Wales and I think in Victoria. It doesn't work for welfare because how do you make money out of essentially giving people money? I note the odious Pauline Hanson comment of people on welfare shouldn't have rights. And that is the thought of a lot of people, I think, that, you know, oh, if you're on welfare, how dare you spend money you're given on things that we don't approve of? It's much more complex than that. And it does get back to the social contract that we mentioned before. And you're absolutely correct. You don't lose your rights just because you're receiving a small stipend from the government just so you can live day to day and survive. And we also have to compare the massive amounts of stimulus funding that's going direct to business in the form of JobKeeper payments. Now, that's a system that's been working quite well, but there's just no checks and balances there. There's no cashless debit card for all of those businesses receiving massive amounts of taxpayer-funded support. There's no cashless debit card scheme for resource companies also receiving massive amounts of government support. There's no cashless debit card for Bunnings or Solomon Lou. And these are people who have made massive amounts of money out of the JobKeeper program. I note, too, that... You can't use it anywhere. There's only a, a list of prescribed places that you can use it. So if you've got a local hardware store and a Bunnings and you need hardware, you've got to go to the Bunnings, the Prime Minister's favourite shop, it seems. If there's a Woolworths and an IGA, you've got to go to Woolworths. This is, I don't think this is the way it should be. You know, I think it should be open to any shop with FPOS facilities I think it should cover, you know, maybe $30 or $50. So if you're a bit short on the card, you don't have that humiliating, oh, sorry, the card's been knocked back in the supermarket, for example. Of course, they're not interested in any of that. They want that. They absolutely want that. A few weeks ago, the federal government settled a class action case with the people that had been wrongfully accused of owing debts to the government when they actually didn't, and that's the infamous robo-debt scheme. And 
The settlement overall is $1.2 billion. The government tried to turn this into a good news story, even though it completely destroyed so many people's lives. And there has been a perception out there that the robo-debt era is finished, and that's all been settled. But there's something out there that's even worse than robo-debt. It doesn't have the catchy title of robo-debt, and it seems like the government hasn't learned any of the mistakes that it made during that particular disaster. But it has introduced a different kind of debt recovery program where three debt recovery companies have been commissioned to pitch for the work of chasing down welfare overpayments. And the more debts they chase down, the more work they'll get from the government. One of the biggest problems with the robo-debt scheme was the lack of human intervention and oversight. So it seems like the government has corrected that problem by putting in the wrong type of human oversight. And Overall, this debt recovery program that they've initiated, it's got the potential to be far worse than robo-debt. Most people, after losing in court, become a lot more cautious about what they do. I think the government is a bit emboldened by opinion polls that rate them highly. Now, what they should know is that opinion polls can't be trusted. They use that mistrust to win the last election. I don't think they quite get how not loved they are. It's not a John Howard after Port Arthur 66% or a Kevin Rudd unsustainably high 75%. It's a 66% of, well, we think they're better than the other side. He seems like a good bloke if I don't sort of look too closely type thing. What they found in the robo-debt is that people who actually didn't have the debts, I think that's important to remember too, weren't your typical, let's kick around the poor people they normally go after. There were people who'd been briefly on the dole. There were uh, people who'd been on the various parents' allowances. There were disability pensions, carers, people who don't fit the mould. And if they've got private debt collectors who are incentivized to collect debt, it can't end well because unless they are absolutely 120% sure that this is a debt that is owed, things are going to get ugly again. I can't see the logic in this, but then haven't been able to see the logic in the current government since, well, 2013. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at what changed and what didn't during one of the most dramatic years in history. The 2020 year is almost over and it's been one of the most dramatic years in human history. The onset of the coronavirus has overshadowed almost everything else, but while there was a need for all of humanity to work towards a common goal, political behaviour and bad habits were never too far away. And after the initial shock of the effects of COVID-19 to health, the economy and social behaviour, conservative politicians all around the world reverted to their usual behaviour seeking to obtain political advantage and self-promotion at every opportunity. It doesn't have to be this way, but it is. In Australia, Federal Liberal Party ministers started to attack the premiers of Queensland and Victoria, and from then on, the media took over with their own unhinged attacks on everything to do with the Victoria government and doing their best to undermine public health messaging. There have been massive stimulus packages that have missed their targets, promised funds that have never been received, rewards for Liberal Party friends in business, a wide collection of corruption allegations against federal and New South Wales governments, continuing poor performances from various governments and key ministers. 
It's been a very different year and it's been a very, very difficult year for so many people. But in other ways, it's been business and politics as usual. I think it showed how wrong our priorities are. That might be a better way of putting it. CEO of a company gets $25 million a year to do what we're not sure. Health workers on the front line of this highly dangerous disease get 1% or 2% of that. Absolutely insane. We've found that society can function without an economy or with a much smaller economy and a much less profit-driven economy than we've had. We've found that people don't need to hop on a train or a bus or into a car to go somewhere to be productive. They can do that from home if they so wish. That's not everyone, of course, but a lot of people, and I suspect that looking at it from the other end, a lot of jobs that were being done probably need to be restructured into something more productive. It really has been a year of missed opportunities. The economy was performing quite poorly before the coronavirus arrived, and we've missed an opportunity to reform the economy. Now, that's not something that could have been produced over six months or nine months. That's more of a five to ten year project or, or even longer than that but at least the building blocks could have been put in place now on a pathway to a new economy for most of this year the government talked about a snap back to the old economy and more recently they've been talking about a comeback for the economy and even making contortions to the english language to declare the technical recession is over now that implies the recession was technical in the first place when it wasn't it was a recession created by the morrison government and hammered home by covid19 and this recession overall it's far from over many key economic indicators are still very low there was a 2.4% increase in the GDP figures during the last quarter, but when you're coming off a low base, any increase will look good. But when you're comparing performance over the year, compared to last year, economic output is down by 3.8%. So whether there's a technical recession, real or imagined, or something else, we've still got a long way to go. It's nowhere near over. Look at the job figures. Job figures are somewhere between damn lies and statistics. And since, when was it, the 80s, where they changed the definition of employment, they changed it so that anybody who was working more than one hour a week was counted as employed. Now, lots of university lecturers, actors, writers, cleaners, music teachers, high school tutors work an hour a week. They're all bundled in. What's unemployment at the moment? Something like 12%, isn't it? So the real is probably closer to uh, 21 or 22. A couple of economists have said this as far as they can break the data down. And it could be higher again. Certainly looking in the newspaper job ads, which is a fairly reliable indicator, there's not a lot in there. People are holding on to their jobs when they have them. And of course, a lot of jobs have just disappeared. Well, I guess the other factor is that when you look at unemployment figures, if there's a high unemployment number that dissuades a lot of people from looking for employment if they think, well, what's the point of looking for a job because there's so many people out there in the same position as me. There's 25% of people unemployed. I'm not going to go out and look for a job because I'm not likely to get one. Mm. But if the underlying figure that is put out in the media is something like 6 or 7%, psychologically, people that have lost their jobs will be out there thinking that they've got a better chance than they actually have. So perhaps that's where some of the psychology comes into it. That's why... Putting people onto JobKeep, even if it did cost the government a lot of money, was far more palatable than having a high unemployment figure. It was the right thing to do, and they did it exactly the wrong way. <laughs> a lot of JobKeeper went into the pockets of the boards or went into the business and was reinvested. I hear stories of people making up employees they'd never had. I don't know if these are true or not, but you hear stories of this. It seemed to be a system that could easily be manipulated to advantage rather than to need. If you're going to do it, you do it properly, and I don't think they did it properly. Overall, Australia has managed coronavirus very well, but there have been some deficiencies with quite a few of the government responses. Community transmission now has been reduced to zero across Australia, except for one case in New South Wales and one case in South Australia. Victoria hasn't had any community transmission for over 40 days. WA hasn't had any transmission for over five months. And of course, it could be seen to be a little bit churlish to look at these problems and 
And I'm sure that most people would prefer to be in Australia when compared to the United States and, and Europe. But there has been a Senate interim report into COVID-19, which suggested that it was the states and territories that did all the hard work of containing the virus, despite the efforts of the federal government to open up borders and the economy against medical advice. JobKeeper was successful in propping up the economy, but even that was a system proposed by Sally McManus and Greg Combay, former union leaders, and the government did actually implement JobKeeper reluctantly. And... We did see that once it seemed that coronavirus numbers were under control, the federal government did start making political attacks on their opponents, putting pressure upon Daniel Andrews and Anastasia Palaszczuk in Victoria and Queensland, respectively. It was almost as though they thought that their job had been completed and it was back to behaving like political warriors and engaging in the culture wars again, getting back to avoiding responsibility for problems, blame shifting, engaging in ideological warfare. I think it was just a case where they just couldn't help themselves. Yeah. New South Wales has not handled it very well in some ways. There's continual border breaches. There's people coming into the state and leaving the state. If this had been Dan Andrews, we'd have talk of the revolving door and uh, what's going on here and this is a total debacle. Because it's a liberal state, it's a human error this thing doesn't happen so much. Now, we know it's happened twice. I suspect, and this is not to disparage everyone working in checking this stuff, I suspect it's happened more because I think the system isn't set up properly. It's always problematic when you have the federal and a state body working together anyhow because of varying legislations, because of varying um, ambitions, because of varying politics. And things do happen. When you had that security breach in Victoria, that could have been dismissed as human error. It wasn't, to Dan Andrews' credit. In New South Wales, we had two German dual nationals be escorted by police from one part of the airport to the other so they could avoid their quarantine. Well, also, the argument was that there's 100,000 people that have been coming through during this time, and if you're getting one or two people that slip through the net... There's human error. That's bound to happen. There's no question about that. These particular German-Australian residents, they came in from Sydney going down to Melbourne. But this was promoted by the New South Wales government and the federal government and the media that this was an honest mistake by a good cop. Mistakes will happen. It was like, well, okay, well, this is the human nature response. Of course, these are going to be the issues. But imagine if it had been two German-Australian residents flying into Melbourne and going up to Sydney. Oh. The reverse would have happened. The media would have been attacking them every single day. The, the federal government would have attacked Daniel Andrews. There'd never be an end to it. We'd get the news corporation journalists harassing Daniel Andrews every single day. So, of course, mistakes do happen. But the media responses based on what colour the government is, that's been the biggest issue of this year. We have an immature federal government, and I think we have an immature Liberal Party. Certainly, Victorian Liberal Party isn't terribly mature. The New South Wales Liberal Party, they've been calling Gladys Berejiklian the school captain. And that's, in a sense, that's true in that she acts like a a 17-year-old in some of her petulant outpourings. You have a government that learned how to do politics in university, but didn't actually learn how to do it outside of university. And it's a government too that has to win. And this has been the problem since about the time Tony Abbott won. When Nick Minchin realised that he could use Joe Hockey's numbers to squeeze the moderates out, Hockey walking right into the trap, it has been about winning. The trouble with winning is that if you win all the time, you lose in the long run often because sometimes you just have to lose. The right thing to do is to lose because it's ethically correct not to to win. This government doesn't understand that. And every time they push through another so-called victory, and it's the victory of Year 9 school or Year 2 university politics, they lose more and more political capital. The other big issue of 2020 was the management of the China relationship, and that continues to sour. The latest news is that more beef producers have been targeted, this time not with the tariff. Their trade has just been halted, so 
the Chinese government has specified five beef producers and they've said, well, no, we're not taking any more from you for a while. And also timber supplies have been targeted as well. And we've actually consistently said that this issue will continue for as long as Scott Morrison is Prime Minister. So whether he's Prime Minister for another year, two years, five years, ten years, every couple of weeks the Chinese government will release yet another product that will be denied entry into the China market. And this is in retaliation for the humiliation that Morrison lumped upon the Chinese government during the year. So we've discussed that in previous episodes of the podcast. One other interesting insult that was fired off by the Chinese media was that they've been labelling Scott Morrison as an old fried dough stick. And that's a delicately Chinese way of hurling a deep insult to a prime minister. Yeah, I I forget all the things it implies, but it was manipulative, old-fashioned, and looking at it fairly, (laughs) they're not wrong. I'd love to be able to get up and say, you leave my prime minister alone, you, you villains. But he brought it on himself. Foreign relations is hard. There's now a group of people saying, you know, oh, we should never have dealt with China. They've got a, an appalling record on human rights. Leaving aside Australia's own not great human rights record, if we stopped dealing with countries we didn't fully agree with, we'd have very little trade. And the other thing too is that we can still criticise and talk firmly and disagree with our allies. Bob Hawke, John Howard, Gough Whitlam, Ben Chifley, Bob Menzies, Paul Keating. I remember when Paul Keating called Mahatia recalcitrant and sent every mainstream journalist running to the uh, dictionary. And this was seen as a terrible, terrible thing, and there was a shot back. But it didn't actually do that much damage to Australian-Malaysian relations because both sides were looking for some minor advantage, and both sides understood that two very recalcitrant males (laughs) are going to clash like that. And we used to have, and I suspect still do, a, a foreign service that could smooth over this stuff. And a lot of the work that the Prime Minister or the Foreign Affairs Minister signs off on was done by the public service over the last 15 or 20 years. The fact that it went badly so quickly, I think, speaks volumes to the incompetence of the Australian government. We did have a question during the week coming in from our audience and we love it when audience members send through their questions. This one came through via Twitter and it's quite a pertinent question as we move towards a possible election in 2021. But the question was, well, why does Labor perform so badly at a national level in elections when compared to the states and territories around Australia? So since Federation, that's 120 years ago now, Labor has only been in office for 32%. Now, the Liberal Party didn't exist at the time of Federation, but non-Labor or Conservative parties and governments, uh, they've been in office for 68% of that time. But conversely, since the Labor Party was formed in 1893 across all states and territories, it's been in office for over half of that time. Why is there a massive discrepancy between Labor in state and territories and Labor at a federal level? The easy thing to do would be to say, oh, it's, you know, a biased media. But it's the same media reporting on state governments. When you posed this to me earlier in the week and you said the states are different, this is actually very true. I've been thinking about this, and this might be the the way that we need to think about Labor, that it's not a federal party. It's six state parties that unite at a federal level. You have the Conservative Shoppies Union. You know, the SDA, whose leadership is made up of highly socially conservative men, mostly, even though the membership is probably one of the most diverse in the um, Australian workplace. You have the CFMEU, who I think are so radical, the party's about to expel them, but who are very socially radical and very politically radical. 
at a state level, a Labor member from Tasmania, say, has slightly different approach to how Labor should work to a Queensland Labor supporter. Daniel Andrews and Anna Palaszczuk, say, are totally different politicians in many ways. They probably agree on a lot of stuff, but if you were to hammer them down or lock them in a room and hammer them down, I think they would disagree on a lot of stuff too. I've had a brief look at the splits. The 1918 split over conscription seemed to be driven from New South Wales. Hughes, who was the leader at the time, was a New South Wales politician. 1931 split splits from Scullin as Victorian as the leader. Joe Lyons splits from the right with mostly Tasmanians. And it was Eddie Ward splitting from the left as mostly New South Wales. 1956, the split comes out of Victoria with the DLP. And the DLP is still a little tiny bit of a force in Victoria. My historian brain, as rusty and disused as it's been recently, wondered, is it worth pursuing the state labour as opposed to federal liberals who seem to be more unified? We have been discussing recently the idea about leadership being a problem for the Labour Party. Mm. In the 2019 Labour Party review of the election defeat, they did outline that Shorten was seen as an unelectable leader. And we've also been discussing recently that Anthony Albanese has been underperforming and there might be moves for a change there. Now, sure, leadership is one issue, but there could also be all these other structural changes that need to be made for Labor to become more competitive at a federal level. And I'm not just talking about the next election, because you can't make these wholesale structural changes to your federal party structure within a six-month or a nine-month period. It's going to be a long process to, to change that. But I did have a look at some of the figures, and this year, the Queensland Labor Party was returned to government, and that was returned with an increased majority. So it actually holds 52 of the 93 seats in the state assembly over there. On a federal level, they only hold five of the 29 seats. That's a massive discrepancy there. It's a similar story in WA at the moment as well, where the WA Labor government, they're the incumbent, of course, they they hold 60% of the seats at the moment. There was a massive landslide towards them in the 2017 election. They've got an election coming up pretty soon. Now, there's talk about the Labor Party actually increasing its vote at that election. But when you look at the statistics for the state of Western Australia on a federal level, they only hold five of the 16 seats over there. So again, there's a discrepancy there. There's, it's not so stark in South Australia and Victoria and New South Wales, but still overall, there's a massive discrepancy between the time that the Labor Party spends time in office at the state and territory level and at the federal level. When Labor's been in, in power too, with the notable exception of Hawke and Keating, it's not terribly unified. Uh, Whitlam had problems in his party, which I think helped the other side say, look, these guys can't run themselves. Rudd was really brought down by small egos who couldn't handle the fact that they weren't ready for the types of jobs they wanted. So they installed a reluctant Julia Gillard, who was brought down essentially by the same small egos because Gillard was savvy enough to realise that these men weren't up to the jobs that they were after yet. I think, too, maybe one of the things is that because Labor has spent so little time in office, relatively, there's an impatience. You know, you might only have your one term before the Governor-General takes it off you or before Murdoch decides he's had enough and he wants to install the other side. And, of course, that's much more complex, too, but the Canberra bubble only sees a couple of perspectives. Why hasn't News Corp been curtailed? Because they're absolutely petrified of News Corp, yet they have no reason to be. It becomes really interesting. I don't think it's because people don't like Labor. I think the sort of 50-50 split is about right. There's been bad luck too. Beasley won the popular vote, if memory serves, but lost the seats. I think incumbency is a powerful thing. People like to be conservative. People like what they like. The current mob mightn't be good, but we're not sure about the other mob, so we'll vote in the current mob, who take that as a 
as an excuse to rot the system and be even more incompetent. So it's a it's a a failing cycle. Well, it seems like if you want to be a career federal politician, join the Liberal Party. If you want to be a career state or territory politician, join the Labor Party. That sounds about right. <laughs> During 2020, there has been massive support for political incumbents. Scott Morrison has had a huge approval rating for most of this year. The Queensland government was returned with an increased majority. Despite the issues that were going on in Victoria, Daniel Andrews still has a high level of political support. Mark McGowan as well in Western Australia. But the end of the year usually provides for a political reset for governments and for the opposition. Will we see an end to the rally around the flag for incumbent leaders? Will the Christmas break also see a break in the perceptions about coronavirus management? which, as we explained before, Australia has managed very well. Could there be an understanding within the electorate, well, the coronavirus has been managed well, that's all in the past now, that's all finished. Will there be a reset in 2021? And will the public be looking at something different in politics? First thing, I don't think we're anywhere near out of danger with this. The vaccine will help. Although the vaccine's already run into problems, as if you have allergies, you can't have it. They haven't said what allergies yet. It's most likely egg and then some other food stuff. The vaccine will help, but it will take six months to become effective. It'll take at least that to distribute. Australia is going to be one of the last countries to get it, and that's actually fine because Australia has relatively low numbers. I'm still thinking there's going to be a third wave. New South Wales has coasted by on luck, really. There are hotspots everywhere with no local transmission. I still don't quite understand how that's happened, but... Well, I'm also thinking about what are the dangers for Scott Morrison in 2021. Of course, right at the moment, he's riding high in the approval ratings, but will the Liberal Party turn against him as, as Labor did with Kevin Rudd back in 2010? Morrison does have his supporters within the party, but generally he's, he's loathed by many in his own party in the same way as Kevin Rudd was within the Labor Party. Then the question is, at what point is the bridge going too far for the Liberal Party? That point for Tony Abbott was after two years of his prime ministership. That point for Malcolm Turnbull was three years after he became prime minister. Will that point ever arrive for Scott Morrison. He, he is a tough nut, but he does seem to crumble when he's placed under pressure. And for a leader like Morrison, it seems like psychological warfare coming in from the Labor Party is the best approach. Find his weak points and he seems to go to water. He's protected by his own rule that he brought in that said that you can't challenge a sitting prime minister till after an election. And Labor has a similar rule. And that was brought in by Kevin Rudd, who didn't want to have the revolving door as he sort of Labor leadership. The trouble is, sometimes you want to get rid of your leader. The other interesting point is that a lot of the Liberal Party only follow the rules that appeal to them. <laughs> so I, I don't think that he's quite as safe as he thinks he is, if that makes sense. Again, he might become the longest serving Prime Minister Nobody has expected him to get this far. We all thought he'd be dumped in a matter of months. We were right in one sense. Under normal circumstances, he would have been. He would have gotten nowhere near the front bench. I think he's well-liked in his seat. I don't think he's going to lose his seat. I don't think he's going to be the third prime minister, sitting prime minister to lose a seat, even though I think a more than 44% of the country would like to see that. <laughs> well... Morrison is a good news prime minister. He only surrounds himself when there's good news to be found and he's always far, far away when the negative news arrives. And when he does have to deal with negative issues, when they do arise, 
he's always putting a special spin on it and making it seem like he's the one that came to the rescue to resolve the situation. And of course, this is generally what prime ministers will do. They will play to their strengths and minimise their weaknesses. So in this sense, Morrison is a front runner. He, he just does not handle pressure very well, and that's why he runs away from problems. And this really is one of his weaknesses, though. And, and, and it's a little bit like a marketing SWOT analysis where he'll play to his strengths and minimise his weaknesses. And this good news factor it partially explains his social media output where he's building a cubby house, pulling a beer in a bar in Melbourne, drinking a beer in another location. But Prime Ministers should be able to deal with all difficult situations, but not Morrison. He seems to run away from problems. And this is probably where there should be a special emphasis for, for Labor, where we've got a Prime Minister who runs away from problems. Well, it's up to the Labor Party to remind the public about all the problems that should be resolved by Scott Morrison, because in most cases, he's the one that caused them in the first place. Robo Dead, the family in Biloela, who aren't in Biloela, I'm sorry, who are on Christmas Island, who want to return home to Biloela. Scandal after scandal after scandal can be traced back to Scott Morrison, and not just because he's Prime Minister, but because he, he did it while he was the Minister. This is incompetence that really... I think deserves a court trial. Should he go to jail for this stuff? I know I know a lot of people say he should absolutely go to jail, but um, look, from a legal perspective with the subtleties of law and the law being a, a donkey, it would be interesting to see it in court. Um, so these are the issues that Scott Morrison should be on the lookout for, but what about Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party? What are the dangers that... They need to be aware of. Does he need to look over his shoulder for 2021? Maybe he needs to look over his shoulder in the direction of Queensland. Maybe he does. Because the Queensland party had its own special issues. And compared to the Victorian party, the Queensland party was a competent, well-run, ethical bunch of outstanding individuals. Now, look, I am being a little bit mischievous there, but the reason why I mentioned uh, Queensland was that during uh, question time this week, Scott Morrison went on the absolute attack onto the shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and it was quite a severe and brutal attack, whereas they've never attacked Anthony Albanese in this way. And to me, that gave the message that the Liberal Party, it's either they're deflecting or they want to attack any possible contender, and it may send out the message that the Liberal Party believes that Jim, they might be facing Jim Chalmers at the next election and actually see him as a greater danger than Anthony Albanese. When Bob Menzies retired in 1966, he said to his successor, Harold Holt, look after Artie. And he was talking about Arthur Colwell, the leader of the opposition, because Menzies could see that uh, Colwell wasn't terribly effectual as leader of the opposition. And if they got rid of him, Holt would not go anywhere near matching Gough Whitlam. And yeah, I, I wondered that too, if they're trying to look after Anthony. Having said that, I'm, I'm still not sure if Anthony's keeping his powder dry till closer to the election and setting up a part where he's underestimated. This is a brave thing to do because you're, the Labor Party is highly impatient with this type of stuff. If this is his plan, and I don't know that it is, and it's successful, it may lead to a severe lesson to the Liberal Party. Well, it also might be a case of being careful for what you wish for as well. So there's, there's a whole lot of issues that I'm sure that are going on within the background, a whole lot of discussions that are taking place. There's so many things that can develop over the next six months. It could be another series of bushfires, for example, because we are in the bushfire season now. Could be a whole range of other issues that undermine Scott Morrison and his responses to all of these issues that need to be resolved in one way or another. So politics just it does change dramatically and it can change quite quickly, even when you least expect it. What else do you think the Liberal National Party combination can destroy in 2021? So they're they're rolling out all of these highly destructive anti-worker policies. They're currently working against the NDIS. That's That's been a seven-year project for them. They're talking about implementing the INDU card. Will they start attacking Medicare? What else can they get up to in 2021? 
I think Medicare, they've needed to keep Medicare this year because of the pandemic. I think if the pandemic does actually start to slow down next year, which of course we all hope it does, I think Medicare will be attacked and will be told about the evils of private medicine and how it's socialism in disguise, all of those stupid American arguments. I think universities will get another kicking. We have the worst education minister we've ever had, and this includes Amanda Vanstone in that list. I think we'll see things like more money to private high schools. I think they'll start looking at other forms of what they see as welfare, and the NDIS will be stripped down completely. I think they'll also start looking at disability pensions further, and I also think they will look at aged pensions and make it harder to get aged pensions. Well, this is a government that's guided by the ghosts of Margaret Thatcher, and she once said that there's no such thing as community. So 2021, there'll be a lot of things that the government can do to destroy the community. So I think we just need to keep watching this space and see what happens. And we'll be here to hold them to account for in every step of the way. That's it for this new politics podcast, and it's also our final episode for the year. I know that some of our critics wish that it was our final episode forever, but that's not going to happen. We're a little bit like barnacles and limpets, and we're not going to go away so easily. It's been a great year. Thank you very much, Eddie, for putting up with my ramblings. And thank you to the listeners for putting up and subscribing and spreading the word, and things are going to get even better next year. Well, they certainly will. And we do have a new book coming out in the new year. And after the success of our previous book, Divided Opinions, where we became the number one best-selling book in Australian politics on Amazon, we hope to achieve the same thing again. And David, you know what it's like when you become number one. Everyone else wants to defeat you. So a new year, a new book, new podcast, everything will be new. 2021 is going to be a big year. It's going to be huge, but I'm looking forward to it. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.